0: Well, good morning and greetings again. You would turn this morning not to 1 Corinthians, but to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will begin reading at verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Let's once again pray and ask for God's help this morning. Heavenly Father, we would bow and worship and give you your due, crown you. You are worthy of being crowned with many crowns, Lord God. You are worthy of being praised throughout all eternity, as we mentioned, for millions of years, Lord God, as eternity rolls. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see and faith to believe how worthy you are of worship and praise that we might rightly and duly Lift up our hearts and lift up our lips and voices to you. Father, we do pray that you would instruct us and guide us in your word this hour. We are a feeble folk in need of your comfort and your consolations, in need of instruction and revelation. Father, And we need to come back to it time and again, even though it's fresh and familiar. May it come, Lord God, with a certain application to our hearts this day, this hour, Father, you know our needs as we stand before you. You know the need of the stammering tongue, Lord God. You know the needs of all before you, Lord God, to hear your word and receive it. So, Father, we pray that you would do your grand and glorious work, walk in our midst, and minister to us. to your praise in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a a notion, a broad notion, a theory. We might even say a prevailing and predominant theory that the development of language, the theory of linguistics, is uh, evolutionary in its sense, that it parallels the evolution of human intelligence. It says, in effect, that language evolved from grunts and squeals and ticks and mutterings over, insert here, many years, right? Over long periods of time, human language developed. It developed from those mutterings and ticks into Shakespearean English and Napoleonic French and a host of other language that it developed over long periods of time. But a short read... Of the early chapters of our Bible should be sufficient to disabuse us of such a theory and such notions, to poke sinking holes into any such theories. God created language, and God created man to know, understand, and the ability to express himself in language, so that when God talks to Adam in the cool of the day, there's no language barrier. God doesn't need an interpreter. Uh, Adam doesn't have to learn things from the very inception to understand what God was speaking to him. What history bears witness to is that God's judgment in the confusion of language and man's sinfulness has led to the degradation of language and its confusion so that we find at times areas where there is very little language development. But that is not at all to say that's not how God created things. All that is to say, and all that I'm saying, is that likewise, there is a naturalistic theory regarding death. A naturalistic theory regarding death. It says that death is simply part of the circle of life. You've perhaps heard that. It's just all part of the circle of life. This has led to all sorts of of ritualistic and pagan approaches to celebrate death, to embrace death in some way as just part of the circle of life, to try to appease death or cheat death, various ways the pagan cultures have tried to get around death. But here again, the careful student of the Bible knows that rather, by one man, sin entered into the world and death, sin. And so death has spread upon all men, for all have sinned. Death is not a natural occurrence. It's a judgment of God upon us. It is all part of the curse and God's judgment upon us for our rebellion against him. Death is not natural, but unnatural. A judgment of God, and it carries with it certain fearfulness and forebodings uncertainties and terrors. We're afraid of death. Death lurks around and we're not certain of what to think of it. Let me just, we could cite many scriptures that identify this, but I'm just going to read from Psalm 55 where David speaks of the forebodings of death and what they meant to his soul. Psalm 55, verse 3 through 5. David writes, because of the voice of the enemy, because of the oppression of the wicked, for they bring down trouble upon me, and in wrath they hate me, speaking of his enemies, his would-be friends who turned out to be his enemies. My heart is severely pained within me, and the terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Here's here's a godly man, and here he can also speak of the terrors of death and how they can overwhelm him. David, don't you have any hope in Christ? Why do you speak in such a way of the terrors of death? Even for the godly soul, there's an element still of terror and uncertainty, fearfulness and foreboding in the thought of death. In the book of Job, we read of death not merely as a squire or even a prince, but as the very king of terrors, reigning supremely above all else. The thing that frightens our souls is death, is death. In Hebrews, we read of those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage until they were delivered by Christ but all their lifetime they were subject to this fear that created a bondage in their lives and soul. James speaks of death in the simplest of terms. How to define it? The body without the spirit is dead. The body without the spirit is dead. Now, no man hates his own flesh, we read, right? But loves it and cherishes it and nourishes it, And so the thought of having his body separated from his soul is a fearful thing, a troubling thing to any man. Such is death. In the opening of the first four seals of the book of Revelation, there is presented to us the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the fourth is a pale horse, and hell follows behind him. And the rider on that horse is death. Rider on that horse is death. Well, as we think on these things, we well might say that that pale horse has visited our congregation. One of our members has been taken away in death. Our brother Ian, who sat there for so long, who sat there for so long, and the last few years sat right there among us. But now where is our brother? What should we think? How should the Christian respond to the thoughts of death? How should the Christian believer think on these things? What comforts can sustain him at such seasons? To help answer that, I want us to look at this portion, this passage that we read uh, this morning from 1 Thessalonians under the following headings, the following headings, six headings. Ignorance is generally baneful and not bliss. Secondly, falling asleep in Jesus. Thirdly, the sorrows of believers. Fourthly, the sorrows of the hopeless. Fifthly, the gospel, the centrality of our hope. And fifthly, and sixthly, the second coming of Christ. First of all, ignorance is generally baneful, hurtful. And not blissful, as the common saying is. Here Paul writes, I do not want you to be ignorant, 1st Thessalonians 4 verse 13, but I do not want you to be ignorant. And those words will sound familiar to, to you, no doubt, because Paul uses them frequently. Frequently he uses that phrase to introduce some teaching, some doctrine, that he wants the saints of God to understand for their good and for their benefit. In chapter 11, he didn't want them ignorant of the fact, in Romans 11, ignorant of the fact that blindness, in part, has happened to Israel. And then he goes on to explain all the implications of that. In 1 Corinthians, he does not want them ignorant of the wanderings of their fathers in the wilderness, I don't want you ignorant of what was going on. The spiritual rock that did follow them was Christ. He does not want them ignorant that there was more to their wanderings in the wilderness than what could be seen with the eye that Christ himself was among them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he says he does not want them ignorant regarding spiritual gifts. There was a great confusion and misunderstanding regarding that. And Paul introduces that subject by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant, that is to say, without understanding, without knowledge regarding these things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he does not want them ignorant of the troubles that they, Paul and his companions, experienced in Asia. And that would be a pattern for them as well, for believers, that they would suffer such things. Well, that brings us back to the question I said, uh, ignorance is generally baneful. Is there times when ignorance might be blissful? Well, we might say there are times, Paul writes in Romans, that he wants a simple concerning evil. Simple concerning evil, wise unto what is good, but simple concerning evil. I don't have to take uh, illicit drugs to experience them to have knowledge of what would it be like. I want experiential knowledge of what it would be like to take fentanyl. That's not what the Bible is encouraging us. There's things that we ought to be ignorant of in, in one sense, simple concerning evil. The Bible talks about not to speak of those things that are done in secret, okay? Those wicked evil deeds of evil men are not for the movie screen. They're not for the story hour down at your local library. Those things are not to be spoken of elsewhere, right? And then also in the book of Ecclesiastes we read, he who increases knowledge increases grief. So there is a sense in which being ignorant of some things is blissful, but perhaps not in a good way. The more we learn about the goings-on within uh. Our government can be a great grief to us, but it's not something we should necessarily close our eyes to and be ignorant of. And when it comes to the subject he has in mind here in First Thessalonians about those who have fallen asleep in Christ, Paul certainly doesn't want us ignorant, that we sorrow not as others who have no hope. That brings us in the second place, this phrase, falling asleep, falling asleep in Jesus. Notice what he says, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And then he'll go on in the next verse to talk about those who sleep in Jesus And the Bible mentions that elsewhere. Now that euphemism of death being described as falling asleep is not unique to the Bible. In fact, it was common in those days and it transferred over into our language. Our word cemetery comes from this word to fall asleep. It was a burial place, a sleeping place for those who had died. So falling asleep In Jesus, what does that mean? Well, you remember how Jesus spoke about Lazarus. He sleepeth, he'll be all right. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, right? And that he raised him up from his deathbed, from his death, his sleeping, right? To fall asleep in Jesus, though, what does that mean? Look with me at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now, that's the New King James Version. The ESV reads this way. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, here, the word for In Jesus is the word dia, and it's dia with a genitive, which almost universally is translated through, okay? But if we translate that through, it can be confusing, but I don't think it's that confusing if we look at it carefully. So if we read it this way, even so God will bring with him those who sleep through Jesus. Through Jesus, that is to say, They're united in him in such a way in their death that it is through Jesus they're kept. It's not saying through Jesus they're put to death. Some interpreters say, well, that would be the conclusion. Therefore, we can't uh, translate it that way, even though that's the most direct and natural translation because Jesus In Jesus, the sleep in Jesus are associated together, and to separate them out does a little damage uh, to the translation. There are times when dia can be translated in, and so the translators here feel at liberty to translate it in, to sleep in Jesus, to sleep in Jesus. Now, what's it mean to sleep in Jesus? That's the real question for the hour. That'll come clear to us as we go along. To sleep in Jesus is to die in Christ, to die in fellowship and communion with him, to having been received as a believer in him and united to him so that when we die, we die in Christ, we die and fall asleep in Jesus, in his comfort and his care in his grace and salvation. We are kept unto eternal life by his mercy and goodness. We read in Revelation chapter 14 of those. It says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from henceforth, from henceforth. And they're free from their labors. Okay, to die in the Lord is a similar phrase. It's to die in the fellowship of Christ, to die knowing that we shall be raised up on that blessed day. Well, we're going to back up and then go forward. Thirdly, we see the sorrow of believers. What is the sorrow of believers? Notice what he says back in 13. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Writing here to the Thessalonian believers. He's addressing this whole uh, epistle and this whole chapter to how they're to carry out and conduct their lives together. There's not to be lazy Christians among them who don't contribute to the good of the whole. They're to love one another, Paul says. I don't need to write that to you. You know you're to love one another. You're doing it. I only urge you to carry on more and more. And in the midst of saying all those things, he wants to give them comfort because he knows there's believers, members of the congregation, who fell on asleep, who've died in the Lord. Now, the sorrows of believers are not so different than the sorrows of unbelievers in some ways. There's real, painful, grievous separation. There's real, s- grievous separation from loved ones who we hold dear. That, that bond is broken. That interaction, that communication that we had, that fellowship with, we had with them is broken. It's more painful even when it's children or spouses or parents when these things happen. So there's real pain, there's real grief, but he says, he's not saying there's not going to be any sorrow nor any grief, but he says, not as others who have no hope. Well, how is our sorrow mitigated? How is it lessened? How is it comfort for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ? Two ways. First of all, it is mitigated by a solemn recognition of the justice of God in the matter. The justice of God in the matter It is appointed unto men once to die. And it's God's righteous justice and judgment that we come to that place. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10, you will remember this account of Aaron and his sons. But I just want you to Want us to note a couple things as we read it. Beginning at verse 1, he writes Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire on it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. Then note this. So Aaron held his peace. The response of Aaron as a father would have been to to shriek, perhaps, with grief, to rip his clothes, to do all the things that was commonly expressed when the Jews expressed their grief over the loss of dear loved ones. But here we read that Aaron held his peace. Then he goes on. Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning." which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. But the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. There was something greater than grieving for his sons, and that was to carry out the ministry. The anointing oil was upon them. They were not to grieve for them. And they were to recognize what? The justice of God in the matter. The justice of God in the matter. A hard pill to swallow, no doubt, for Aaron. A hard pill for Eliezer and Ithamar, the brothers, to swallow. Nevertheless, that is the case. And for us, brethren, most of the deaths that we witness are not going to be the, the deaths of believers. And it's going to be a hard pill to swallow, isn't it? But we're going to have to find and recognize the justice of God in the matter, even as we think about the further implications. For we know what follows death is judgment. Sobering thoughts, yes. Sobering thoughts, yes, but we must acknowledge God is just and God is holy in all he's doing. He's appointed for man once to die. But secondly, The sorrows of believers are mitigated in the promised life believers have in Christ. Their sorrows are greatly mitigated. Their sorrows are greatly lessened by the fact that they can think they have new life in Christ. It's an abiding eternal life with Christ in glory forever and ever. No more sorrow, no more crying, no more weeping, no more of the things that we have experienced here on earth. That should be a great blessing and joy to the believers, especially as they witness fellow believers die in Jesus, die in Christ. Turn with me, if you will, back to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Going down to verse 20. Paul writes, For our citizenship is in heaven. That's, we're, we're, we're members of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. First and foremost, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. What a blessed promise. How that takes the sting of death out when we think of it. Yes, we will die. We will die like all the rest. Unless we're alive at the coming of Christ, we shall die with the sting. The sting has been removed. And the promise, glorious promise, these vile corrupted bodies that we now inhabit, that have been wrecked by sin are going to be transformed like unto Christ's glorious body on that day. What a blessing, what a promise, and what a mitigation it should be to us of the sorrow we have for our fellow believers when they pass this scene, when they pass on. Yes, there is sorrow, there is grief with the separation, but it's mitigated, it's lessened. There's comfort and consolations in considering What the scripture says is going to become for them. And what will become for us? Well, a question often arises at this place, or sometimes arises in men's mind. Why doesn't God, who forgives, the God who forgives and accepts us when he converts us, cleanses us, makes us new believers in Christ, why doesn't he bring them immediately into his presence? Why doesn't he take the new believer immediately into his presence or sanctify them completely here and now, done, completely sanctified as soon as we're converted? Why not, as with Enoch, does he not bypass the grief of death and take us straight unto heaven himself? Why can't all believers have that joyful experience? Well, it's a great question. But it has a ready answer, or at least an answer I'm going to quote from R.L. Dabney. He, he writes this, it's a little lengthy, it's a little cerebral, but follow along with it. Now then he says, does bodily death subserve the purposes of a wholesome and sanctifying chastisement? In other words, does, is, is it undo the purpose of a, chast- a chastening? There's a chastening with death. A chastening for us with death for the believer. For the unbeliever, it's part of the judgment that is going to lead him to his eternal destruction. But what is it for the believer? Death is but a chastis- chastisement. He answers most eminently the prospect it serves from the earliest days when it begins to stir the sinner's conscience to a wholesome seriousness through all his convictions, conversion, Christian warfare, to humble the proud soul, to mortify carnality, to check pride, to foster spiritual mindedness. As we think about the fact that God is going to chasten us in our death, it should have that sobering, sanctifying influence on our lives as we approach closer and closer to that hour. It is the fact that sicknesses are premonitions of death which make them active means of sanctification. Bereavements through the death of friends form another valuable class of disciplinary sufferings. Not that death may be actually in prospect, death must actually occur. And when the closing scene approaches, no doubt in every case where the believer is conscious, the pains of its approach, the solemn thoughts and emotions it suggests, are all used by the Holy Ghost as powerful means of sanctification to ripen the soul rapidly for heaven. I doubt not that when we take into view the whole moral influences of the lifelong prospect of our own deaths, the prospect and occurrence of bereavement by the death of friends, the pungent efficiency given to sickness by its connection with death, as well as the actual influences of the closing scenes of life, we shall see that all other chastisements put together are far less efficacious in checking inordinate affection and sanctifying the soul. Yet without this, without this, there would be no efficacious chastisement at all left in the world. A race of sinners must be a race of mortals. Death is the only check of the nature of means potent enough to prevent depravity from breaking out with a power which would make the state of the world perfectly intolerable. So bless God for death, that his judgment of death yet waits for all of us and is a check, it is a means of sanctifying us As we look all our life long and think, "I'm coming to that hour. That hour is coming for me. That hour is coming for me. How it ought to check sin in my life. How it ought to sober me to think how holy God is, and I am going to come and appear before a holy God." And it can even have a check on the ungodly to check them from the depravity to which they would subject themselves. And no doubt this is part of the reason. That God cut back the years of a man's life to three score and ten or four score years to cut back their life lest they should multiply their depravity or think that they have all these years to carry on in this way. Well, having seen something of the fact that ignorance is usually baneful of falling asleep in Jesus and the sorrow of believers, Something should be said about the sorrows of the hopeless. He says, as others who have no hope, others who have no hope sorrow and grieve differently, don't they, than we do. They don't have those two means of mitigation, thinking of God's justice in the matter, thinking about the comforts the believers have and the promise of eternal life that awaits them the sorrows of those who have no hope in Christ, no pardon for sin, no hope of transformation, no hope that their vile bodies are going to be transformed to be conformed to the body of Christ, both in character and in a new resurrected body, they what? They have so little consolation. How do they deal with their grief? How many times have you met with uh, your fellow man who says, the, 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 the things they try to hold on to are so small and insignificant, like sand through their hands. Well, at least they didn't suffer. Okay? Well, that's a good thing, right? At least they didn't suffer long and hard before they died. We can take some consolation in that. All of us, right? But if that's all we have, it's not much. It's not much. Well, she was a good person. She was a good person. I'm going to find some consolation in the fact she had a full life, right? She had a full life. She was a good person. Or we can get even more creative, right? They try to mitigate their sorrows with things like, well, I'm sure they're, you know, playing golf up in heaven or doing this and that thing. Try to mitigate their grief by hallucinations and imaginations that don't comport with reality, And then there are those who have no sense, no light of the gospel, and so they have other ways that they grieve that are much more painful. Perhaps they feel the necessity to to mar themselves, to cut themselves, to hurt themselves, to feel real grief in unity with the lovers who have passed on, with those people that they love so dearly. So we're not to sorrow in those ways let there be no cuttings in the flesh right the bible says for those who have died some people just hold to this i live and breathe i'm glad i'm still alive by the grace of god they might even mention the grace of god but that's all the consolation they can muster up But so that leads us in the fifth place to the gospel the gospel is the centrality of our hope turn back 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 14. He says, For if we believe, if we believe, this is predicated on believing, do we believe the gospel? When Paul writes 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I, re- I tell you the gospel, okay, that Christ died for our sins according to the gospel, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Okay? For if we believe, that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now there's a whole, there seems to be a missing piece of his whole theology that Paul has compressed together because if we read other portions, we see where he uh, expresses this more fully. We'll look at a couple of those. But I want you to note here He says, he will bring with him. What does that mean to bring with him? Think about that as we go look at some of these other passages. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 and verse 5. Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 5. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Here he is not so much speaking about physical death, but that by faith we are joined with him in such a way that we're in the likeness of his death. And we're going to also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Notice, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He's not saying we're never going to sin again, but we're no longer under that master. Sin is no longer our master if we've come to Christ. And we can live in triumph over sin here and now. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we should also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died unto sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Okay? So we ought to be walking in newness of life here and now. In light of his death and resurrection, and we shall also be raised up at the last day, because Christ was raised up, dies no more, has dominion; sin has no more dominion over him. Turn with me also to First Corinthians chapter fifteen. We could we could spend a lot of time in this chapter, but just a couple of verses. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, Paul. Uh, has to set before the Corinthians the argument for the reality of the resurrection. So central to the gospel, so central to any eternal hope in life. Verse 12. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty or vain, and your faith is also empty. Yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. If there's not going to be any general resurrection at the end of days, then we have to conclude that Christ isn't raised either. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, there it is again, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now think back to what Paul was trying to address with the Thessalonians. Perhaps they also were infected with this false doctrine, this false notion that if you fall asleep, if you die in Christ, there's no hope left for you. Unless you live and abide till he comes back, you will not be saved. You will not go with him into all eternity. But Paul is setting the record straight there, in in 1 Thessalonians and here also in 1 Corinthians. Paul had to write to Timothy about the fact of Hymenaeus and Philetus who taught what? That the resurrection was passed already. Perhaps they said when all those people came out of their graves at the resurrection of Christ, that was the resurrection. If you didn't partake in that, your hope is gone. What a diabolical doctrine. Therefore, it is needful that we be not ignorant, but know and understand what the teaching of Scripture is regarding the death of believers and their hope in Christ. Now, turning back then to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, what does it mean when he says, he will bring with him, he will bring with him. Even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus Now, this may refer to what follows when he talks about the believers being caught up in the air to meet the Lord in the air, and that he's going to bring them with him. Perhaps that's what he's talking about. But I think it also might point back to what Christ promised his believers in John 14. Turn with me to John 14. You know the passage. You're familiar with it. John 14 but just to see it, to hear it again, and to see how it connects with these promises that Paul is setting before them. John chapter 14, verse one. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. There's his promise. We hold that promise. Christ is going away, but he's going to prepare a place for his disciples, his believers. And if I go, verse 3, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I believe that is especially what he's talking about. He's going to bring with him. Jesus is going to bring the believers with him to that place He has prepared in eternity. That place He has prepared, we might say, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, and the new earth. Jesus is going to bring us with Him by His grace. So what do we hold fast? We hold fast the gospel. The promise is this, that Jesus died, substitute for our sins. Jesus died the Lamb of God to remove our guilt before God, to reconcile us to His Father, that he died and rose again, and that if we believe in him, we've been planted not only in that likeness, but also in the likeness of his death, and we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He is going to keep them and raise them up at the last day. This is the hope of the believer. This is central to the gospel. Take that away, take the hope of the resurrection in a way. Our preaching is empty, it's vain, it's worthless. We're found false witnesses of God. We are of all men most miserable. If we take this away, we ought to sorrow worse than those who sorrow who have no hope because our hope is wrenched away from us if there be no promised resurrection. That leads us in the sixth place, to the second coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And we're just going to kind of highlight this large portion of scripture. It is often regarded as a controversial passage, but I think a, a simple reading of it is pretty plain and straightforward. Look with me at verse 15. For this we say to you, By the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will by no means precede or the old King James said prevent those who are asleep. Okay, so the Lord is going to come back. We who are alive. Now, notice Paul includes himself in the we, we who are alive. Did Paul think that he would be alive? Well, no man knows the hour. So even for Paul, he could say, well, we, I'm alive now, so maybe I will be alive when the Lord returns. Now, that did not turn out to be the case, but it should be the perspective of all believers. Perhaps the Lord will return while I am alive, while we're alive, right? And those are going to, we're not going to precede, however, those who've fallen asleep in Christ, those true believers who've fallen asleep in Christ. We are not going to go before them. Notice what he goes on to say. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. If we're alive at the coming of the Lord, we're going to witness the dead in Christ being raised up, going to meet him in the air before we ourselves are caught up to meet him. It's an amazing scene. It, 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 it defies belief at some times, doesn't it? It's, some, some, it's one of those things that unbelievers have a hard time fathoming. Even for us as new believers, no doubt, it was something we had to wrestle with. Is this really going to happen? What about Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe died out at sea. He was buried out at sea. The sharks probably ate him. Where is he? We don't know where he is. Somehow, God's going to resurrect his body, put together all those features, bring it back together. Not just for one man, but for millions and millions of people who have walked the earth over time. God's going to put them all together. Yes. Yes. Amen. Yes. Yes, it will be a tremendous scene. And we will watch all that before we're caught up as well to meet him in the air. Does that still stir your heart? Do you still say, oh, for that blessed day when our Lord returns, is that your blessed hope, as the Bible speaks of elsewhere? Now notice in this verse 16 that there's nothing secret about it. Sometimes we hear about the secret rapture that people aren't even going to be aware of. But, but here it's going to be before the eyes of everyone. The Lord himself will, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God. Hardly something I would regard as secretive. And the dead in Christ will be raised first. That's hardly going to be a secret to see all those people coming out of the graves and out of all the places where they have been scattered. Then verse 17 Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And what does he take away from all of this? What is Paul's point in all of this? Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Draw consolations and comforts. Speak to one another about it. Do we speak to one another about the Lord's return? Is that a conversation that we have very often, even with fellow believers? So often it descends into controversy about what this means and what that means. But what about that basic blessed hope? Do we speak about that with any kind of earnestness and expectation? It ought to stir the hearts of believers together. The Lord's going to return. The Lord's going to return. We... One of the churches we visit, right in their bulletin every week, they have the list of coming events. And one of the events is the return of the Lord. In there every week, the return of the Lord. It's coming. They don't have a date for it. They're not date setters. But it's coming. Do we have that hope and expectation? Well, what are some concluding applications we can take away from all this? First of all, verse 19, as we saw, shows us, or verse 18, that this should be a source of great comfort. Great comfort, a great comfort regarding those who've fallen asleep in Christ. Remember, that was the subject, how we dwell together in church as brethren to love one another. And in this particular area, when brethren have passed on, how we're to view those things, how we're to find comfort, We find comfort in the fact that Christ himself is raised up and with that he has promised to raise up all those who fall asleep in Christ, who are trusting him. And there is the promise of his glorious return. We should speak of these certainties and these promises among believers. Second, when comforting the sorrowful, when comforting the sorrowful, We need to be careful not to act as judge and jury. There are times you're going to meet with people who said, my uncle's died. What what are our words of comfort to them? Those can be very difficult for the Christian. Do I say, well, he's a goner. He's lost. He's going to be consumed in hell for all eternity. We're not the judge and the jury in those matters. We can only say this. We serve a merciful God. I hope he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's where he finds his strength. And to that person, to urge them, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. Make sure you've embraced Jesus Christ. Don't focus so much on that dead person. We don't know. But the man who's there before us alive, the woman who's grieving there alive, we can minister to them. Can't we? I couldn't find the quote, but the old paraphrase, I'll give you the paraphrase of Robert Murray McShames. There is recorded one deathbed repentance that we should not despair, but only one that we should not presume. We don't know whether that person repented on their deathbed. We don't know that for certainty. Be careful not to be a judge and jury when we're seeking to minister comfort to those who've lost a loved one. But let's not, let's not lose the gospel in that conversation either. Let's not put that aside. Let's bring it in. Let us but God give us grace to be wise and winsome as we seek to minister comfort to the sorrowful. Thirdly, let our hope, our comfort, be consoling and genuine, not feigned or obnoxious, not feigned or obnoxious. When a fellow believer like our brother Ian has died, there's some grief, yes. There's also a measure of joy and comfort that we enjoy at the same time because we know the gospel is true and we know that he was trusting in Christ. And so there's, there's a comfort for us. Don't, don't put on airs about it. Don't try to fake that, but let it come naturally. And where it comes naturally, it might be a testimony to those with whom we minister as family members or others. And don't be obnoxious about it either. Say, well, he was a believer, he's going to heaven. To be kind of uh, strutting our stuff in that way, that's hardly uh, a godly perspective on these things. But let it be a real comfort that we are partaking of. We have the joyous hope. You know those old uh, funerals down south where they would have the solemn Uh, hymns and songs, and then they would break out, in when the saints go marching in, okay, I think there's a right place for that, isn't there? To rejoice when the saints go marching in, how I long to be in that number, when the saints go marching in. So let our hope, let our joys be known in some sense, but in a restrained way, in a solemn way, let it be solemn joy uh, that comes out naturally when we're Ministering to others. Let me just conclude with something I forgot. I don't know where it went. Let me just conclude with an old hymn. It's not in our hymnal or I turn you there. But it has words of comfort. Oftentimes funerals are marked and characterized by somebody reads a poem or something and it can be kind of just a nascent thing that has no real application. But this hymn, I think is very fitting, it says, Asleep in Jesus, blessed sleep, from which none ever wakes to weep, a calm and undisturbed repose, unbroken by the last of foes. Asleep in Jesus, oh how sweet, to be for such a slumber meet, with holy confidence to sing that death has lost his venom sting. Asleep in Jesus' peaceful rest, whose waking is supremely blessed. No fear, no woe shall dim that hour that manifests the Savior's power. Asleep in Jesus, O oh, for me, who may such a blessed refuge be. Securely shall my ashes lie and wait the summons from on high. Asleep in Jesus, far from thee, thy kindred and thy graves may be. But there is still a blessed sleep, from which none ever wakes to weep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would both still and solemnize our souls before you, Lord God to think on these things, great things, Lord God, central things to the gospel. Renew our hope, Father, renew our expectation. Oh, Father, comfort us that we might comfort others, Lord God, that we might be a body of believers who speak of these things, who hope in these things, and that we might be a people who might minister comfort both to the hopeless and the hopeful. Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, you would keep us this hour, this week, that you would keep us in your keeping by your grace, by your wisdom, and by your strength. Heavenly Father, hear and receive us, we ask, in Jesus' name.